It's good to have you here today. Uh, we're carrying on in a series called One that we started last week. This week I was thinking a lot about um, some of the prayers that I prayed over the years, probably like you, prayed some pretty big prayers, some pretty heavy prayers, um, some difficult ones. Uh, I still remember a lot of those because I, I journal. Sometimes I write out those prayers because otherwise I'd never remember them. Um, but it made me think about like uh, years ago, uh, I remember like the first official prayer I ever prayed. I say official because the first prayer I prayed that wasn't for a test, I think. And uh, I was in high school and, um, you know, I remember one night beginning to think in my mind, I hadn't gone to church, hadn't read the Bible, hadn't heard the gospel, didn't know about Jesus dying on the cross for me. But God in his spirit was beginning to work in my heart. It's kind of one of those things. We don't, we don't find God. I, I'm convinced we don't find God. Um, God calls us and uh, we simply respond. And I, um, I remember one night getting on my knees. I didn't know how to pray, but that's what I, I, was my, I think that's what you do. You get on your knees, you close your eyes, you bow your head. And uh, I prayed to God and I didn't know who I was praying to, but I, I, I said, you know, I, God, I don't know if you're even there, but I think you are. And if you are, I need to hear from you because I just don't know. I don't know what life is about. I don't know who you are. I don't know where I'm going. I just don't know. Uh, I remember uh, God worked over 24 hours and the next evening uh, I was back on my knees in the same place next to my bed and I was, I was asking the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and to make me one of his children. Uh, you know, when I think back, some of the things that we ask God for in prayer, pretty big things, pretty amazing things that God listens to. Uh, remember, you know, praying at one point in my life, God, where, where do you want me to go to school? And what do you want me to do uh, for a vocation? I remember like praying one time at school, like, hey, God, what do you, what do you think of Christy? You know, she's kind of cool, right? Right? You like her, right? Like, hey, you think I should ask her out? And, and then I remember like praying, hey, you think I should ask her out again? And then I remember praying one time, I remember praying like, okay, God, I bought a ring. Make, can you make her say yes? Because I don't know that she would, but could you make her? And, and uh, you know, actually, um, of all the prayers that I've ever prayed, probably one that's burned into my mind more than any other is, um, it was 19 years ago, um, our, our oldest son was about 21 months old and um, he had been, uh, he had gotten very sick and, and um, had a, a rare kidney disease. And in the course of days, um, he was, ended up at OHSU and kind of one of those situations as, as parents where, you know, your child is sick and there's nothing that you can do for them. There's nothing. You don't, you don't possess the ability to, to heal them. And I remember my wife and I were trading off nights at the hospital. And it was my night to be there. And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And he would wake up at times and, you know, be in tears and, and um, couldn't sleep well. In fact, this is, this is him at the time. And uh, don't tell him I, I, I showed that. And, um, and I remember just, uh, just being completely broken uh, as a parent. And um, again, found myself on my knees and just really just begging God for the life of my son. We didn't know if he'd live. We didn't know if he'd die. Uh, out of my hands and just begging God, God, please, would you please spare the life of my son? You know, I made a lot of promises to God, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is sometimes we forget 
about those really dark moments. Sometimes we want to forget. But what's interesting is I was just thinking about it this week. And back on the first of this month, we celebrated his 21st birthday. And he graduated from college back in the spring. And, um, you know, God answers prayer. God is there for us. And sometimes we forget that. And just thinking about some of the things that we pray for at times. Sometimes really, really important stuff. Sometimes trivial stuff. But God cares about all of it. But I was thinking, imagine that you get a phone call this afternoon. You're home. The phone rings. Pick up the phone. And it's Billy Graham. Imagine Billy calls you and Billy says, you know, it turns out we have like a mutual friend who told me about you and God's really put you on my heart. And I just wanted you to know, I've been praying for you all week long. I've been praying for you, something very specific for you. Uh, Maybe you've got a problem. Maybe you've got an issue. Maybe someone's sick. And so Billy calls you and says, I want you to know I've been praying for that. I don't know about you, but I'd kind of be like, you know, Billy's praying. It's all going to be good, right? Because, you know, but then imagine this. So imagine this. Imagine that Imagine that Jesus prayed for you. Imagine that Jesus prayed something very, very specific for you. Like if Jesus prayed for you, wouldn't you be like, I think I'm going to be good because Jesus, well, because after all, the way it works is Jesus prays and then he answers the prayer. So it works all, it's all good when you're Jesus, right? Like, but what if I told you that Jesus prayed for you? Actually, he did pray for you and he prayed something very specific for you. And although Jesus prayed a lot of prayers in, uh, during, well, during his time on this earth, several of them were recorded. And there's one we're going to look at today and it's in John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to John 17. I've also got part of the text in your notes for you. We often refer to this as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's prayed just before the crucifixion. Jesus knows that he's about to be arrested, about to be tortured, about to be crucified, mocked, rejected, hang on a cross, go to the grave. All this is about to happen. And, uh, and the Bible says he's under a certain amount of, of stress at the time. Now, I don't know what you do when you're highly stressed. I don't know what you pray for, but I usually pray that God would take the stress away. That's just me, right? But here's Jesus, and he's not praying in this prayer for God to take the stress away, not praying for it. In fact, what he prays for is three things, basically. He prays that for himself, that in what's about to happen, not that God would take it away, but that God would be glorified. He prays that he will bring glory to the, God, uh, to the Father through this. The second thing he prays for is the, the disciples because he knows that, that life's about to get very tough for them when they watch him die. And then in, in the years to come, the things that will happen to them, the ways they will suffer for the sake of the gospel. And then he prays for those who will come later, who will believe it. He prays for you and me. He prays for us. It's, it's kind of, a, I believe that in the uh, all-knowingness of God, that, that when he prayed, he was praying for us. He had us in mind. He had you in mind. He was praying for you. What did he pray for, for you? For those of us who live 2,000 years later. He prayed for something very specific, and we should obviously want to know what that is. In verse 20, this is what, this is what he says. He prays this. Now, I, I do not ask for these only. Now, these only are the disciples. He's praying for the disciples because they're going to they're gonna take the gospel and the church is going to be planted. So he prays for them, but he doesn't just pray for them. But also, he says, I pray for those who will believe, those who are to come. In other words, what he says is this. Um, I've given the gospel to the disciples. The, the disciples are going to give the gospel to those in their world. Those people are going to give it to the next generation, who give it to the next generation, who give it to the next generation. And eventually, down the road, there'll be some people who live on the other side of the world in Hicktown, USA. Um, and I'm praying for them. I'm praying something very specific for those people. That, that's us. 
He's praying for us, those who will believe in me through their word. So what does Jesus pray for for us? Very specific, and it's important that we know what it is. In verse 21, that they may all be, what? One. That they may all be one. And not just kind of a casual one. Watch this. But here's the kind of one. Just as you, Father, because he's praying to the Father, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that's the kind of oneness that I'm praying for. Not a, not a club kind of one, not a, not a, hey, we're good friends kind of one, but a supernatural kind of one. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become, just in case we didn't get it yet, perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And here's our big idea for this weekend. That unity is what Jesus prayed for. And unity in the church, unity at Gateway, is a gift we receive, not a status that we achieve. It's not something we work to create. It's not uh, something the pastors have to figure out how to create in the church. Unity is a gift that has been given to us from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and it's interesting that Jesus gives us a little context because we could be like, well, so what is, one, what is oneness, what does unity look like, right? So he gives us a picture. He, he, he points this out to us. He says that it's like Jesus and the Father because Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have a oneness. We call that, we call that the Trinity. Our God is a triune God. You, you've probably heard that that phrase. But sometimes we are like, what's, what's the Trinity? And sometimes people have a, a hard time explaining that. So let me explain this to you in very succinct, clear terms. All right, here's the Trinity. One God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now what that means is that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the, and, and the Son is not the Father, and, and the Spirit is not the Son. Okay, but they're one in essence. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Spirit, the Spirit is in the Father, the Father is in the Spirit, right? So now it's perfectly clear to you, right? <laughs> it's like, it's the Trinity, right? Throughout Scripture, that this unity that exists within the Trinity is defined by things like love, care, respect, purpose. Now here's what Jesus is telling us, that there is a, there is a unity that exists in the Trinity that he wants to exist in us as well. And, and here's the thing. Jesus himself makes that unity a reality for us. And he does it by being in us. So what the Bible says is that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That's Jesus living in us. As one writer put it, the most foundational definition of a Christian is someone who's been united or who is one with Jesus. And so the way this works is, is like this. Where in the world, a lot of people, when they think of unity, they think, well, we need to get together and figure out how we can be one. But that's not how this works. The way this works is that when I place my faith in Jesus, that Jesus and I become one through a spirit. And then when you place your faith in Jesus, you and Jesus become one in spirit. And what God does is he makes us one. Not, not this way, if this makes sense, but this way. We are all connected together through the Son and the Father and the Spirit who dwells in us. We become one through the work of Jesus Christ. And, and this, this oneness, this unity, 
is a gift from God. It's a, it's a gift that he gives to us. Thing about a gift is you don't earn it, you just, you just receive it. Um, last week, uh, I was driving through uh, Starbucks and um, I ordered my drink. And when I got up to the window, the lady handed my drink and she said, somebody inside just bought this for you, right? So that's a sweet deal for me, right? I, I didn't have to make it. I didn't have to pay for it. All I had to do was enjoy it. All I had to do was, in, was to take it and to enjoy it. And that's kind of what we're talking about here because we didn't have to work for oneness. We didn't have to, we didn't have to pay for it. We didn't have to come up with it. It's something that Jesus has given to us to enjoy. Jesus has given the church the gift of oneness. He's given gateway the gift of oneness that we might in some difficult to define way experience the same type of unity that he enjoys with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, theologians have noted that there's five different dimensions of unity in this passage, but I want to point out three because they're very germane for us in in what we're talking about in this series called One. Three different ways in which Jesus makes us one. And the first one is this. We'll call it doctrinal unity. We've talked a lot about doctrine over uh, the course of this year as we've gone through First and Second Timothy. And now we're talking about it again in verse 3. Here's what Jesus prays. And, and this, he says, is eternal life. That they know you, that they is us, that they know you, that's the Father, that they know you, the only, notice, the only true God, There's only one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, when most people think about eternal life, we think about a quantity of life, right? We think of a life where where I'm born again and then my life never ends. And that's pretty cool. We like that. So when this life is over, right? And and, and then when this decrepit body is done, then I get a new one and I get hair again and it'll be sweet. It'll be great. I get to live forever. But when Jesus talks about eternal life, he usually talks about a quality of life. Not just a quantity, but a quality. And here's how he defines what makes it so great because we get to know the true God. And what that means is we don't just know about God. He's not just saying I could go to a Bible class and take a test on the doctrine of God and pass, but it means I have a deep personal experiential knowledge of God. I know about him and I know him. I know he's love and I experience that love, right? He's a personal God. He knows us. We know him as love, as truth, as purposes. And notice he says he's the only true God. That means there are, there are false gods. There are lies about God. How do I know the true God? This is, this is important. There are truths about God that we need to understand. In verse six, here's what Jesus says. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. I love this. This kind of struck me this week. He says, basically what he's saying here is that, um, that you and I are a gift that the Father gave to the Son. We're a gift from the Father to the Son. I kind of like that. So the next time somebody says, you know, who do you think you are? You can say, I'm a gift to God, right? Like, who are you, right? So anyways, but here's what he says. says, I've manifested your, your name. Now, in our culture today, we think of a name as, well, my name's Bob or my name's John. But back then when you talked about a name, you're really talking about the character of a person. And the word manifested means to bring to light or to reveal. So what he's saying is, Jesus brought to light who the Father is. And that was important because there were a lot of misconceptions about the Father back then, just as there are today. For instance, there were some people who thought there was, there's no God at all. 
Well, that's a lie. That's a, that's a misconception, a, an, an untruth about God. Jesus came to clear that all up. Oh, there's a God and you're about to meet him is what he says. Let me show you what God is like. Uh, there were people who thought that God was an angry God, a warmongering God. Jesus came to kind of straighten that out. Actually, he's a God of love. Some people thought he's a far off God who doesn't care. Jesus said, no, God loves you so much. I came down to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, some people thought he's kind of a, a clipboard God, right? Some rules and regulations and checking off the box. You get them checked off. You get to go to heaven. You don't. Sorry, out of luck for you. But Jesus reveals the truth about the Father. And, and what Jesus revealed about the Father is what we technically call theology. Theology is a study of God. Now, I, we've said this so many times over the, you know, the, the last nine months. Like some people say, well, I'm not a Christian. I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. I just love Jesus. I'm not, a, I'm not in a doctor. I just love Jesus. Right? We're all theologians. Everyone is a theologian. It's just some people are bad theologians, right? Because the, your theology is what you believe about God. So Jesus came to clear up our theology. In verse 7, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I, he's praying to the Father, for I have given them the words, that's, that's truth, that's the knowledge of God, revelation. I have given them the words that you gave me. That's theology, that's doctrine. And they have received them. So that's what we do. We receive the truth of God. And, and, the, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Now here's what Jesus says in a nutshell. He says, all the stuff I taught weren't really my own words. They came from the Father. So, you know, a lot of times people go like, wow, well, the greatest teacher that ever lived was Jesus. And Jesus would say, yeah, I was a pretty good, I was a pretty good teacher, but here's what you need to know. All that teaching, that came from the Father. See, what Jesus is saying is there was complete doctrinal unity in the Trinity, between Jesus and the Father. There was no disagreement. There's no difference of opinion. There's no disagree or agree to disagree. Jesus never, it's not like when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, okay, so I'm about to give you the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not totally down with all this, but, you know, this came from God the Father, so, you know, here we go. No, there was absolute, complete doctrinal unity. And, and here's the deal. Doctrinal unity is foundational in the church because what a lot of times people say, we don't need doctrine in the church. But remember, again, theology is just what we believe about God, about who he is and what he's done. If we don't agree on that, then we just don't agree, period. When we say that we have doctrinal unity, what we mean is we believe in the same God. We believe in the same Jesus Christ. Now, there's a big misconception in Christianity today. You read it in books, you hear it in sermons and in podcasts and all over the place that say, people who keep saying doctrine or, or dogma and adherence to doctrine, that doctrine is a barrier to unity, that the biggest barrier to unity in the church today is doctrine. Saying that doctrine is a barrier to unity is like saying eating right is a barrier to good health. Like, have you lost your mind? What are you smoking, right? Right? Because that's not the way it works. In order to have unity in the church, people say, you got you to get rid of all the controversial stuff that, that divides people. You got to get rid of the doctrine and, and just, you know, just kind of accept the things that everyone agrees on. And like, let's just love love and, you know, get rid of all the, and then we'll have unity when we get rid of all the controversial stuff. But in fact, what you end up with is just a bunch of powerless and worthless cliches. You don't have the gospel. You don't have unity. You have a, 
You have a club. You have a social club, right? Where do we get, where do we get doctrine from? We get doctrine from God. He gave it to us in the Bible. We call the Bible the word of God because that's what it is. And it delivers to us truth and it gives us reality. Now, Jesus warned us. There's a lot of false teaching out there. So you got to be careful about that. In particular, Jesus warned us about kind of two kinds of false teaching. And because he ran into it a lot in his day. The first came from a group called the Sadducees. And we could call them uh, Bible minus people. We call them Bible minus because they, they kind of took, they would take stuff away from the Bible. So for instance, they only, they only held to the first five books of the Bible where Jesus affirmed the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, they only held to the first five books of the Bible and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They rejected many of the supernatural things in the Old Testament and they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Like here, I was taught in, the, uh, in Bible college, here's how you can remember the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and that's why they were so sad, you see. Huh? Right? I got a, I got a million of them. So, uh, they, so these people stopped short of the basic truths of the Bible. And that's why Jesus said to them, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And, and this, this happens. People come into church and say, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. Can you please get rid of these things that I don't like? I, for instance, and I have these conversations about different things, but let me give you one that I've had a lot of conversations about over the last year. Kind of different people, but same discussion. Uh, people come in and say, where does Gateway stand on, um, on same-sex love? So I've been getting this um, a lot lately from people coming in and kind of testing the waters of the church. So where does Gateway stand on same-sex love? And that means kind of, usually for some people, it means where do you stand on just like a, um, a same-sex relationship outside of marriage or, or even is it okay if they get married? And so a couple of things, just so you understand. First thing I tell people is, um, well, first of all, you shouldn't care where Gateway stands. I don't care where Gateway stands. Um, where Gateway stands is not the issue, Right? What, what matters is where, where the Bible stands on the issue. That's all that really matters. And who cares about where gateway stands? Well, hopefully, there's no such thing as gateway stand. It would be synonymous with Scripture. So that's the first thing I tell. I tell people, it's like, you shouldn't care where I stand or where we stand. What you should care about is where God stands. That's actually the big issue. The second thing I always tell people is, um, here's what you need to know. Um, you need to know that even though we have a stand on this issue, we love you. We love people that God is reaching out to because God loves people. Jesus came to seek. Jesus came to save. I have friends um, that are involved in same-sex relationships. Um, I love them. I care about them. We have a relationship together. But at the same time, what I tell them is, I really stand firmly on the word of God. And scripture is very clear that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. It was that way from the very beginning and it's never changed. Now, yeah, again, I got into a discussion with someone last night who said, yeah, but that was, but things have, times have changed. Times have changed. It was different back then. And what I tell people, like, very lovingly, honestly, quite, I, I love, I'll say, I love you and I care about you, but here's the thing. It, if God had changed the rules, he would have told us. Like, for instance, you know, it'd be like saying, well, you know, murder was wrong in the Old Testament, but these are different times now. Gossip was wrong. Slander was wrong. If God changed the rules, I think he would have told us. I think he would have let us in on it. Now, does God love people? Does God, is God reaching out? Does God want to save? Yes, and so do we. So do we. We care deeply for people and we want to minister to them. But folks, you have to understand this. And, and this is what I get from people. People will basically say, well, that's a divisive issue. That's divisive, and you're never going to have your unity in your church if you stand on that. 
But here's what you need to understand. If we compromise the truth of God in order to gain unity, we'll end up with neither one. We'll have neither truth, nor will we have the unity of God. Bible minus people don't create gospel unity, just a powerless, gospelless dogma in a church, in special interest groups, but certainly not a church. Beware of Bible minus teaching. Beware of Bible plus teaching. That was the other. So Jesus had two groups to deal with. The Pharisees were the other group. Now the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, they accepted the entire Old Testament as Jesus did. But they didn't stop there. They added their traditions and their regulations and their rules and they made them on par with the Bible. So they were Bible plus people. Which is why Jesus told them, they said, you teach as doctrine the traditions of men. Right? So those are two different things, but you teach them as the same thing. You, teach your, you, you take your own teaching and your own tradition and you make them on par with the Bible and you create rules and regulations that go way beyond the Bible, your Bible plus people. And there's still a lot of Bible plus people in churches today. People who create their own rules and standards and they add them to the Bible and they expect everyone else to fall in line and to, to, to fall in line with their doctrine and their dogma. People who come up with, you know, well, we'll come up with a dress code. Like no pastor should ever wear a blindingly orange shirt when he's preaching. That would just be, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's sin. Um, you know, um, people should only homeschool their kids or only public school their kids or only private school their kids or only on whatever. And you make this a rule. This is a rule. This is a way. You should only use this Bible version. You should only have this worship style. And th this is Bible plus stuff here. And it, it, it only results in division and fighting and relational stress. So what do we do about the Bible minus and the Bible plus? Well, in verse 17, here's what Jesus prayed. He said, sanctify them. He's praying for us. Now the word sanctify means to grow up someone spiritually, right? None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. We all sin, we all fall short at times. But sanctification is, the, is a process whereby God is making us more like Jesus every day or every other day at least. So we're slowly moving in that direction and we're becoming like Jesus. Sanctify, grow up your people in the truth. That's what God uses. What's the truth? Your word is truth. So here's my question for you. If our unity is founded on God-given truth, are you engaging in that unity? Are you digging into the word of God? Are you reading it? Are you developing some theology, well, some good theology? Are you memorizing the word? Are you meditating on the word? Are you discussing and getting teaching? Because God gave a doctrinal unity to the church. We need to be engaged in discovering what that is. But there's a second kind of, of a unity he gave us, and we call it, we'll call it missional unity, if you will. Now, Jesus is a missionary God. I think about it this way. Uh, there was a time in history when the unity or when the Trinity had a, had a meeting and they decided to send Jesus on a short-term mission trip. So they were having a meeting and they're like, you know, there's, there's planet Earth, place is a mess. And we're going to send Jesus on a short-term mission trip. Well, it'll be 33 years. But when you're eternal, that seems like a short-term trip. So they sent Jesus to Earth as a missionary, sent by the Father, became one of us, lived among us, uh, in human uh, form and, and, and like a human in every way, but without sin. He seeks relationships with people who are far away from God. He came to seek and to save the lost. And in verse 15, here's how Jesus prays. Now, I do not ask 
that you take them out of the world. He's praying for his disciples and praying for us. I do not pray that you take them out of the world. He's saying, I, you know, I'm not saying that like when somebody gives their life to Jesus, that the father would be like, what a, what a pit, you know, I'm just going to instantly take you to heaven. He says, I'm not praying to take them out of the world, but that you, you, you protect them from the evil one. Now they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, right? He's a missionary. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. So when anyone becomes a Christian, they also become a missionary. And Jesus wants us to join the mission of the Trinity, if you will, that we would pick up the mission to seek and to save, to transform sinners into saints, uh, to, to transform the indifferent into worshipers. In Matthew 28, Jesus just really cuts to the quick for us. He puts it this way. All believers, he says, I want you to go therefore and make disciples. Really, that's kind of our, that's our mission, to make disciples of all nations or literally in the Greek of all, all people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity in mission there. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So God has given Gateway Church a mission. And that mission is to make disciples. And part of living out our God-given unity means that every one of us engage in the mission. Every one of us, without exception. Not just the leaders, not just the gifted, not just those who go on short-term missions, but every one of us, because it's part of, of the unity that is given us. And if we cast our mission aside, our unity is impacted by that. Now, I say that because sometimes Christians come to a church, and I see this sometimes at Gateway, people come to church and they just want to, they just want to spectate. They don't want to be a missionary. They just want to, I just want to come, sit down, sing a few songs, take a few notes, go home, you know, and just do my own thing, and I'll come back next weekend, well, or every other weekend, and I'll spectate. That's all, I'm just, I'm a spectator. Some people, they kind of feel like they're God's gift to the church, they're an analyst. Sometimes I get this. I'm not gonna engage, but I'm just gonna come, and like, after church, I'll go tell the sound person how to, you know, run the sound, because they obviously don't know, and I'll, I'll go to a grow group, and then I'll tell the grow group leader how to actually lead a grow group, because they don't do it right. I'll tell Matthias how to, how to do youth ministry, and I'll go tell the pastor how he can preach better, and understand we're growing. There's always ways we can grow in this stuff, but, but the point is, they're not interested in actually being on mission. They just want to be an analyst. They just want to spectate. And then some people just focus on their unique spiritual gift. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but God's given every one of you uh, a spiritual ability called a spiritual gift. And sometimes people say this, well, I have the gift of teaching, so I'm just going to teach. I'm, I'm, I'm a good counselor, so I'm just going to counsel, or I'm an encourager, or I'm, I'm good at leading worship, or whatever. And I, I would just say, that's great. That's wonderful. We should all use our spiritual gifts. But, but mission, that's for everyone. That's for every single believer, regardless of your spiritual gift. Sometimes people say to me, well, pastor, I'm, I'm really shy, you know? And I'll say, well, you know, I understand. I understand that you still have to be on mission, you know? That's still your job to get out there. Now, I say that because it's possible that some of you are here today and you're not on mission. You're not on mission right now. And because of that, you're missing out on the joy that comes through unity with a group of believers when they're on mission. Why are we not on mission? Well, sometimes it's just because we're selfish, right? 
Sometimes it's just because we're living in sin. Sometimes it's because we're lazy, we're afraid. But God is not done seeking and saving. He's not done, thank God. And we need to be a part of that. And by the way, the good news is he never asked any of us to do mission alone. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus created a team of 12 disciples. There's a reason why he sent them out in pairs. Because mission is always something we do together. Always. So you need a team to help you be on mission. And if you don't have a team right now that's helping you reach your oikos and your world for Christ, I'm just going to tell you, you need one. You need one. So, for instance, we have grow groups at Gateway. And part of what grow groups are for is we get together, we pray for one another, encourage one another to get in the word, but we do mission together. We pray for one another's oikos. Sometimes we help one another reach out to their oikos. We do it together. If you're in a grow group, by the way, and, and you feel like there's no support going on in terms of the mission, then I give you permission next time you go to grow group, when you walk and say, Pastor Bob gave me permission and we need to talk about mission because I need some help. I need someone to pray for me and help me reach my world for Christ. But it's also, there's also some other opportunities to do it together. For instance, right now next door, there are a team of people who are on mission with our kids. There are, uh, we, on Tuesday nights, there are a team of people who gather together who are looking to reach our children for Christ in our community. It's called Club W. Um, God didn't, the good news is God didn't call any of you by yourself to reach the, the youth of Camus and Washougal. He called a team to do it. And so we have a team on Wednesday nights. We have a team on Sunday nights who are on mission together to reach our kids for Christ. We have teams to reach men teams to uh, reach women. We send teams to, to Nicaragua. But here's the great thing. When you get on a team and you're on mission, what I'm telling you is this, God shows up. And when God shows up, things happen. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had our church picnic, which is kind of cool. But quite frankly, the church picnic is just an excuse to have an outdoor baptism as far as I'm concerned. So like we got together and there's a bunch of us and we sat uh, on the bank of the river and we had some baptisms. So I'll tell you, I love, of all the things we do as a church, baptism is one of my favorite. And, and here's why. Because um, I get to, you know, I get to see you guys sometimes in ways that you don't. Like sometimes we're singing and I get to see you. And some of you are loving it. And some of you aren't loving it. And sometimes when I'm preaching, some of you are loving it. And some of you, you don't, I don't know, you don't look like you're loving it. But I get to see it. But when we do baptisms, here's why I love baptisms. You're all smiling. You're all on the edge of your seat person gives their testimony. It could have been great. It could have been not so great. They could have stumbled, been afraid. You know, you couldn't hear them or whatever. But when they come out of the water, you guys clap, you guys cheer. We love it, right? Because we love the fruit of the mission. We love it when God makes us a unified team. That's the second uh, kind of unity. And the third kind of unity is relational unity. And I'm just going to introduce it today. And that's it. Because um, next week we're going to get super practical. But here's what he prays. He, he also prays this. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, that's, all, that's us, whom you have given me, because we're, we're gifts of God, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have, have given me. Now, this is interesting to me. Jesus says, I want them to be where I am. Now, he's not just talking about when life is all done and we're in heaven and with him. He, there's a way in which we can be with Jesus now, right? What does the Bible say? When, when, when two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. When there's a team together, there's, when there's unity together, Jesus says, you can experience me in a particular way. And here's what he prays for. He desires that we would see his glory. 
Now that word glory simply means the perfection, beauty, and the character of God. So here's a question. Why is it so important that we see Jesus' glory? Why would that be so important that he would pray for it? And what I would say is this. The reason seeing the glory and the beauty and the perfection of Jesus is important is because, well, it, it changes us. Like I talked to someone last night who said they'd had a really no good, very bad week. And they came to church and they came in the back and they're in a no good mood. And they sat in the back and we started singing the songs and, and their songs were about Jesus. And then we started preaching the sermon and the sermon was about Jesus. And this guy said, somewhere in the middle of all that, it clicked. Now he had a problem and it was a tough week, but he began to see the glory of Jesus. And when he saw the glory of Jesus, what he began to think was, my problem is Jesus' problem, right? Because Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, and it just put his problem into perspective, right? Because he's a big God. And we got a little, really, in perspective, our problems are nothing compared to his power. And it puts our relationships in perspective and our money in perspective and our opportunities in perspective. So he goes on and he prays this, Oh, oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. And I, I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known. In order that the love that you have. Now watch this process. In order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. So here's what he's basically getting at. The Trinity love each other, enjoy each other, serve each other, are united. And that's what Jesus wants for us. He's like, I want that for the church. I want that for my followers. And the pattern is this. The father loves the son. The son reveals the father to us. And when we know the father, when we know the son, then the, the, the power of God and the love of God begins to reside in us. God fills us with his love. And it was, as a result of that, the Bible says that we love because he first loved us. So our love spills out to the Father. Now, we start to love the Father. And if you've ever found yourself like going, well, I just love God, just remember that love came from God. That's a gift that God gave you to give back to him. And it begins to spill out as we begin to love each other as well. Now, here's something really interesting. And that is that as, as, as much love that exists in unity that exists within the Trinity, uh, theologians have noted that there was only one time in all of history that we know of that that unity was, was interrupted. Um, and the, the, the unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that, that place was when Christ was hanging on the cross. It's really an amazing thing to think about. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a moment as Jesus hung on the cross when that, when that unity was interrupted. This is an amazing thought. I would put it this way. Think about this sometime. That God was willing to temporarily interrupt the unity of the Trinity so that we could be injected into that unity and experience that as well. How do we get in on that? Because there was a time when God, when he allowed that to be interrupted. Now, let me explain it to you if I can this way. When I, when I first became a Christian, and I used to think about Jesus' agony on the cross, I usually thought, I, tried, I would try to picture Jesus hanging on the cross. I try to picture, um, I would try to imagine what it would be like to be nailed to a cross, to be beaten, 
to a bloody pulp, to have a, a, a crown of thorns shoved on my head and to be hanging there and literally suffocating to death on that cross. And when I first became a Christian, I thought, wow, Jesus was just, when he says, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, why are you letting me suffer physically like this? And then after I'd been a Christian for a while, I started to realize that as agonizing as it was physically, it was probably more agonizing for Jesus because he was bearing the sin of the world, the, the, the disgusting filth of our sin that he had, he had kept at a distance his whole life, he now embraced. And it's hard for us because I think, you know, we're like, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad, you know? And Jesus is like, you have no idea what a sinner you are, you know? And, and I, there came a point, I think, as I grew in my understanding of God where I realized that worse than the physical agony was the spiritual agony of our sin. But then as I was studying this week, it occurred to me, I wonder if maybe even worse than that, if it's possible, is the agony of the separation or the severing of the unity between he and the Father at that moment. Now, that may be, I, admittedly, that's hard for us to understand. Like, you know what it made me think of was, and I'm, I'm I digress when I say this, but it made me think of when I, 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 gradu- I went to college in Phoenix and after I graduated, I moved to Oakland, California for a summer to work at a church there. I think it was there five weeks and then I moved to Portland, Oregon to go to seminary. And um, Christy, who I had just been dating for a very short time, uh, was, uh, had been going, living in Phoenix, uh, going to the same school I was and she moved to Portland, Oregon, which is where her family's from. So for about five weeks, we were, we were separated. And it was agonizing. I just remember like, I felt like I was languishing in life. Like I would write her letters every day. Sometimes I'd write two letters every day. I would, I would call her on the phone. I, I even made a, I even made a, um, a cassette mixtape for, you know, so she knew what I was like listening to. She still has it. It's super embarrassing. Um, but you know, I was like, and here's the thing, like I barely knew her. I hardly knew her. And it was so hard for us to be separated for those five weeks. And we come to this unity that we can't even really understand the depth and the willingness of God to be severed for us on our behalf. God, just imagine that God did that for you. That's how much he loves you. Jesus' cross makes unity for gateway possible. And I, I think it's true that very few of you would ever walk into this church with the attitude, I'm going to mess this church up. I don't know that any of you ever said, I'm like, I'm going to come in and be as divisive as I can and gossip and slander and mess up this church. But my fear is that many of us do exactly that through our passivity, through just being a spectator, or even through our absence. Have you ever thought about the fact that you could be messing with the unity of the church simply through your passivity or your absence. And next week, we're going to look at the early church and how they lived out their oneness in very practical ways. We're going to look at how they, they, they met daily for worship at church, in homes. Uh, they got instruction, prayer, fellowship, meals every day. Every day, and we think that's crazy. Well, those people didn't have a life, right? But we have a life today. We're going to look at that next week. I'd encourage you to read Acts chapter 2 and pour through that. But here's my question for you. Is it possible that your passivity is interfering with the unity of Gateway Church right now? Is it possible that it's interfering with the very prayer that Jesus prayed for our church? And here's what I mean by that. 
Like, let's say the weekend's coming and you're thinking, am I going to go to church this weekend or not? How do you make that decision, that whether you're going to church or not? Is it, does it like, um, is it all about you? Is it like, well, I don't, do I feel like going to church? Uh, do I have the time to go to church? Mm, do I like the series? Uh, will Bob be wearing a ridiculous color this weekend? Um, I don't, I'll wait for the next Or do you ask questions like this? If I'm not there, how will it impact other people? Have you ever thought about how, like, if I'm not there, how will it impact the worship? You might think, well, does it? I, I, as a worship leader at Gateway, I would say, absolutely it does. You may not realize that, but it does. Have you asked, like, how will it impact the people that I don't talk to this weekend? How will it impact the person who I won't encourage? How will it impact my neighbor who might show up and I won't, I won't be there? Now, I'm not, I know there are legitimate reasons for missing church sometimes, but what I'm talking about is just when we have this selfish, small-minded, me-first, careless attitude about Jesus' prayer for us. Let me sum it up this way. There is a power in unity that comes no other way. There's no program, there's a strategy that can do what unity does. Look in verse 21. He says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And now this is important. So that, you might underline that. So that. Why do we do this? Why is this important? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, when you get a bunch of people like us together, when you get panthers and papermakers, when you get ducks and beavers and cougs, you know, when you get Republicans and Democrats. I was laughing yesterday because somebody said, when you said that, like, they're probably Republicans. You said, where? Where are the Democrats? And there are Democrats who are like, where? There are Republicans in our church. And, you know, like, you get young people and old people, and, and, but they love each other. Right? They don't root for the same team, but they love each other. They don't live in the same town, but they, they love each other. We had a new, there's a new family in our church, and they were asking me the other day, they're like, so what's this deal between, you know, uh, the paper makers and the, and, and, and the uh, you know, the Panthers? Is that a real thing? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, it's a thing. But when you get those people together, and they still love each other, and they still serve each other, and they pray with one another and hang out with one another, Jesus says, it's a proof. It's a proof of who he is and that he's real and that he, he, he saves. I say this because many churches, have, their primary strategy for outreach is a program. When you ask, how is your church, you know, how's it reaching the community? We have a door-to-door program. We have uh, outreach holiday services. That's a big one in churches. Our staff gathered this week to begin planning our Christmas Eve services because Costco said they're coming, you know? So it's like, we're working on that, you know? Well, or we do it through kids' programs, camps or, or whatever, and all those things are great. But what good does that do if people come to your church and it's a church filled with believers who don't really care about one another, don't really love one another? They lack the love and the supernatural power of Jesus, which is why Jesus said to us, and these are words for us to really consider, by this, in fact, would you read this? Read John 13, 35 with me. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There you go. There is no substitute for love and for unity. Unity is not something we have to achieve. It's a gift 
We simply receive. Well, next week, we're going to continue on. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. Read it. Think about it. I'm really excited about our time together next week. It's going to be awesome. Let me pray for us.